0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Joshua Lucy, a physician assistant in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. A fasting lipid panel is part of a patient's routine health maintenance visit. This common laboratory test has many values on it to include total cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and triglycerides. This test helps clinicians to calculate a patient's 10 year atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk to help guide treatments. If a patient's risk is determined to be high, statin medications can be considered. However, despite using statin therapy and addressing modifiable risk factors, some patients still have elevated triglycerides. What role do triglycerides play in a patient's health? Does hypertriglyceridemia contribute to cardiovascular disease? Today, we're joined by Abigail Stockland, a Mayo Clinic primary care nurse practitioner from our Rochester campus. Abby previously worked in vascular medicine as a nurse practitioner and has research and clinical interest in primary prevention of atherosclerosis and lipid management. Thank you for joining us today, Abby.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: And today we're also joined by Michaeline Burrows, a registered dietitian nutritionist at Mayo Clinic's Rochester campus. Michaeline has 31 years of experience serving as a registered dietitian nutritionist at Mayo Clinic and has worked in adult and pediatric hyperlipidemia clinics in the past. Thank you for joining us today, Micheline. Happy to be here too. So today we have something special. We have both of these experts here, and we're going to be going back and forth in a panel discussion to help deliver this talk to you all. What really are triglycerides? You know, we see this on a lipid panel. However, should they be thought of separately from the other values on this test? Michaeline, let's start with you. From a dietitian's perspective, what is a triglyceride?
2: Triglycerides are a kind of fat that circulate in the blood, and they're a different kind of fat than cholesterol, but on that lipid panel, when we get our results, they're listed as part of the fats in the blood. Triglycerides are different than cholesterol and are influenced by different parts of our food choices and lifestyle. So. In that regard, we should kind of consider them kind of a cousin to cholesterol, they're (laughs) not the same, but they should be considered differently because our efforts to improve them and manage them um, require some different goals and strategies.
0: Abby, what about you? Any more information you can share on what it like, what really is a triglyceride?
2: Yeah.
1: So for me, I I try to go back to chemistry class, thinking about the triglycerides that are made up of, you know, one glycerol and three fatty acids. And I think contrary to popular belief, triglycerides don't really come from food, but they're made in the body really kind of by the liver. And when we eat excess calories and carbohydrates, we make extra triglycerides and that are stored in our fat cells for later use. About 25% of adults in the United States do have a hypertriglyceridemia.
0: And Abby, on that topic, you know, what is considered hypertriglyceridemia? Is one reading diagnostic for this, or should this be repeated to receive that diagnosis?
1: So, a diagnosis is based on a fasting serum triglyceride level greater than 150 milligrams per deciliter. We are most familiar with using the adult treatment panel classification system to classify triglycerides. So patients with elevated fasting triglyceride levels should be evaluated first for secondary causes of hyperlipidemia and then treated accordingly. So we should be checking lipid panels in patients with a family history of a genetic lipid disorder premature cardiovascular disease, and those at risk for hypertriglyceridemia. So I would say typically this is done every four to six years for normal healthy adults. And some people who have heart disease or diabetes or other risk factors, their cholesterol is checked more frequently.
0: And Abby, you mentioned secondary causes of high triglycerides. What are some of those causes that can do this.
1: So primary cause is familial, a genetic gene mutation really. And if you're concerned about that, the lipid panel really comes back and looks very strange. And those patients should really be further evaluated by a clinical geneticist. That's a real complicated issue. Secondary causes are something that we see in primary care every day, and those include uncontrolled diabetes, metabolic syndrome, Cushing's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, hypothyroidism, and even medications. And so when I think about medications, these are very common things that patients are on beta blockers, antipsychotics, diuretics, amiodarone, estrogen, prednisone, glucocorticoids, and steroids. Now, just because somebody takes those medications doesn't automatically mean that they're going to have hypertriglycerides, but I think that the medication list should be reviewed at every visit.
0: Agreed. And you mentioned that the things that we're seeing in primary care all the time. So if it is something secondary like diabetes, for example, probably should be addressing these things more aggressively and first before we kind of do a deeper dive, you think, or what would you say?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So Abby, for our patients out there, what are the negative consequences that can occur from having high triglyceride values? You know, I think as clinicians, we really get focused in on LDL cholesterol and how that manages into a patient's atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease score. But, you know, triglycerides aren't a sole level on that test. They're not solely made into that calculation. So Why matter? Why do we have to worry about these high triglycerides?
1: Yes. In general, I'd say that this is a gray area. Cholesterol is carried by triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, and that in turn affects cardiovascular disease risk. You know, so we look at some of the things that we know. We know that the higher the triglyceride number, the higher the risk of poor outcome. There's a direct relationship, and that we see frequently in patients that develop pancreatitis with triglyceride levels that are greater than 500. We also know that high triglycerides are associated with atherogenic cholesterol particles that deposit themselves in the intimal layer of the vascular wall. And those can form plaques and then eventually lead to instability. Yet we don't know how lowering triglyceride levels uh, reduces ASCBD risk score. So the evidence is a bit conflicting since triglycerides are not directly involved in the development of clinical impact of atherosclerosis. But the evidence suggests that high dose, highly purified marine omega-3 fatty acids can reduce cardiovascular risk. A little bit more on that. In 2018, there was a clinical trial called the REDUCE-IT trial that looked at reducing cardiovascular events with icosapent ethyl. So the brand name for this medication is Visipa. This was a, a really great study. It was conducted over seven years, multi center, double blind, randomized, placebo controlled. This study looked at 8,179 high risk patients with established cardiovascular disease or with diabetes mellitus and other cardiovascular risk factors. So in these patients, triglycerides, were between 135 and 500, and LDL was between 41 and 100, and all of these patients were on statins. The participants in the study were then randomized to icosipent ethyl taking two grams twice daily versus placebo. Primary endpoint of the study was stroke, coronary revascularization, or unstable angina. The results concluded that icosapent ethyl was associated with significantly reduced risk of the primary endpoints, that I mentioned earlier, by 22%. That's huge. That's almost a quarter of the participants. Ironically, this also reduced the triglyceride levels by 19.7% and LDL levels by an additional 6.6%. This was a mind-blowing study, a game-changer.
0: So that's that REDUCE-IT trial and seems to state that although the triglyceride level is not a sole part of our ASCVD risk calculations for our patients, that study alone seems to suggest that it does have an impact on cardiovascular outcomes.
1: Absolutely.
0: And I think another thing that you mentioned is that high triglycerides can cause that pancreatitis. And I think this is a really interesting thing for patients because, you know, most of these things we call silent killers, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, but for our purpose of this talk is this high cholesterol and triglycerides has that special characteristic of being both. It's both a silent killer seems to be with this cardiovascular outcome, but also can lead to an emergency room visit with causing acute pancreatitis. So it almost has both sides of the coin.
1: Yeah, patients with um, high cholesterol, they typically don't have any symptoms, which makes it hard to identify these patients in the general population.
0: And we try to prevent them from feeling this pancreatitis before that gets too late, huh?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And, you know, Abby, I think another great point, you did mention that high triglycerides seem to have a role in plaque formation. You know, do you mind elaborating a little bit more on that?
1: I think mostly the the plaque formation as it relates to atherosclerosis. And I think that we need to remember that atherosclerosis is an inflammatory state and that creates a pro-oxidative environment. And in that environment, free fatty acids are released by the lipoprotein lipase in the sub-endothelial space, and those are oxidized. It cause inflammation and then endothelial dysfunction, and that causes atherogenesis.
0: Clearly something that we need to treat. And Michaelene, I'm gonna to come to you with this question. You know, what are some examples of some foods that can cause high triglycerides? You know, primary care, we love in trying to improve somebody's lifestyle habits. And is there any good eating styles or foods that patients should avoid?
2: That is a very good question. I think one piece in particular to keep in mind for patients is our body can make triglycerides, or does rather, (laughs) as Abby said, our body makes triglycerides from first and foremost, I think of as extra calories. So even thinking portion management, could I trim down a little bit? That is, is key, and then if patients are interested in learning more and next steps, then certainly I talk more about how important it is to minimize the intake of simple carbohydrates, sweets, and then also alcohol. So the things to minimize intake of, besides overdoing total calories, would be minimize sweets and refined carbohydrates, cookies, candies, Refined grain products, minimize those, and then also minimize or avoid altogether alcohol.
0: Do you mind refreshing us, Michaeline, on what is a refined carbohydrate? Like, what are some of those examples that we should have our patients avoid?
2: Certainly, a simplistic recommendation would be to minimize. Cookies and bakery products and grain products with added sugar. For my patients that are ready for the information to go the next step and read a label to make a better choice for a food product, I encourage choosing a grain product, say a cereal, that provides three or more grams of fiber per serving. Mm. That helps us choose whole grain breads, whole grain rice products, whole grain cereals. So using that three or more grams of fiber per serving goal can be a boost in helping you discern what's a better choice. With that, I also add the caveat that we'd like to also have that grain product be not much more than one or two grams of fat per serving.
0: As well. And, Michaeline, you know, some people out there call fruits nature's candy. Should patients be concerned about their excess fruit consumption in regards to reducing sweets, or does that not matter here?
2: That's a good question. I do encourage people to have a mindfulness of not overdoing fruit. I think. If we think about what a general recommendation we hear for eating well or eating healthy is, is eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. But what I feel like people hear is eat a lot of fruits and maybe I'll get a vegetable. I very much encourage include a vegetable at least two or three times a day in your diet and try to get a fruit. I think the National Nutrition Care Manual from American Academy of Nutrition Dietetics, the recommendation on triglycerides there recommends trying to get two to three cups of vegetables per day and try to get up to a cup of fruit per day. And perhaps if you don't have high triglycerides, you can manage a few more fruits. But for my patients with high triglycerides, I do encourage them to be mindful and manage their fruit intake and not think of that as just like, oh, it's good for me, I can have as much as I want. Or, oh, right. bananas were on sale at the market <laughs> and, or the bananas were going to go bad, so I had to eat four today.
0: That, <laughs> that
2: would be not recommended.
0: So yeah, it sounds like it's not as quite as bad as like a cookie, but still something to be mindful of to not do an excess.
2: True, and the other piece you mentioned, how can we say refined versus whole versus better choice, I will typically have the recommendation of the less processed, the better. And I know, Josh, you're a fan of um, recommending whole food, plant-based food choices. So the less processed the food, the better.
0: Absolutely. And I think it always comes back to everything in moderation. Anything that's good out there, moderation.
2: Oh, most certainly. (laughs) And along the way, I've heard lots of interesting amounts of fruit with people feeling like oh I've done a good through and I've increased more fruit but half a watermelon which I've heard before is probably not a good choice
0: (laughs) and while we're on the topic Michaeline, do you mind sharing foods like like watermelon that brings to mind as a food that has a high glycemic index do foods that have a high glycemic index factor into triglyceride management at all
2: I would say, yes, that's true. I would say uh, most of my patients are not ready to try to understand the recommendation from whole foods, less process, and then to throw in, oh, and by the way, consider the glycemic index, too. <laughs> I think it's helpful and good information. It's another way that we categorize food choices in the realm of how those foods might impact our blood sugar or might be metabolized to impact our health or triglycerides. But from a practical standpoint of what I educate my patients with, I typically don't go into the glycemic index of food. I've got other fish to fry. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, more often than not, I'm really concentrating on helping people understand what a healthy diet is. Yes. And even as simple as a recommendation as plate method and to go to choosemyplate.gov to right. get an idea of what are good choices and how much of my plate should be even something as healthy as fruit. Oh, still a quarter of your plate should- <laughs> to, be, yes. to be fruit. The other kind of family recommendation I give would be offering up using that plate as the framework of how much of each food group fills my plate. And then if second helpings, if one is still hungry, I encourage second helping of vegetables as the best bet for the first offering of second vegetable oh you're still hungry how about another scoop of broccoli or some baby carrots or that kind of thing
0: and aside from patient education you know I mentioned glycemic index for our listeners out there who are primary care clinicians do you mind defining that a little bit of what is a glycemic index and just generally the concept of foods that are high or low with a glycemic index of that
2: The glycemic index is a way, as I mentioned earlier, to categorize food to give us an idea of how much and how quickly will that food impact one's blood sugar with a defined amount. I believe the defined amount is how much of a hundred grams of a particular food will increase your blood sugar.
0: sugar. So something like watermelon is high glycemic index, meaning your blood sugar spikes really quick, but something such as like, what would you say has a low glycemic index, like a broccoli?
2: Sure, because it's higher. Uh, broccoli, certainly, it, because broccoli is more fiber and yeah. less simple carbohydrate.
0: It breaks down slower. Broccoli
2: has little, if any, fructose, which is fruit sugar, sugar and watermelons all the way <laughs> fructose, <laughs> carbohydrates. Again, I think glycemic index can be influenced quite easily by what you eat with that particular high glycemic index food. So if you eat a small amount, say, a half cup of watermelon with a whole grain cracker with peanut butter on it, the influence on the blood sugar would be less because we ate that watermelon with a whole grain and a healthy fat. So that's where I feel like high glycemic index for my patient population can get really mucky because how that food might impact your blood sugar can vary differently from what you eat with it and the ripeness of the food and how the food is cooked and what have you. So it's a difficult to include all those parameters when I'm trying to encourage the patients, how about eat half your plate vegetables and the less <laughs> processed and, you know, yeah. those messages I feel like are more routine for me than trying to explain glycemic index.
0: And are there any foods, Michaelene, that can help to reduce triglycerides, or is it mostly just what you said, kind of following those high vegetable, low refined carb diets?
2: That's a really good question, and I was just looking at some of the recommendations again and revisiting what the um, research said, and there's a study from current developments in nutrition from a couple years ago that really does ascertain and the research shows that high fiber is recommended. If we want to tell people something to look for, I mean, we're saying, oh, try to keep the sugars low and what have you. If we want to say something to look for more of, we encourage fiber Fiber. intake. I know some of my patients with concerning lipid panels, I will even recommend a fiber supplement as a routine choice, just because that can kind of be a baseline boost. For example, if they're taking Metamucil is the one I typically recommend because the psyllium fiber has all kinds of beneficial effects from a cholesterol standpoint, but just add. Adding that consistent supplement of fiber every day has potential to help with the triglyceride values as well.
0: Thank you, Michaeline. And Abby, you know, kind of getting away from food as medicine, which is probably one of my favorite medicines, you know, can adequate exercise also reduce triglycerides? You know, and how much of this would be needed to see a beneficial reduction?
1: Yeah. So I love counseling my patients about physical activity. And we know that exercise directly impacts lipid metabolism. You know, aerobic activity increases fatty acid oxidative capacity in the skeletal muscles. And so our body has more ability to oxidize these fatty acids then. And so in the beginning of the talk, I talked about how triglycerides come from excess calories. So burning more calories through aerobic exercise, results in weight loss and weight loss reduces triglycerides. A good rule of thumb that I usually tell my patients, a 10% reduction in weight can reduce triglycerides by about 10%. You know, and this is aerobic exercise, cardiovascular conditioning. The American Heart Association recommends that adults get 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity exercise. Okay, so moderate amount of effort. So brisk walking, water aerobics, biking less than 10 miles an hour. You're able to keep a conversation through that moderate intensity workout. The other recommendation then would be, if you can't do 150 minutes, 75 minutes per week of vigorous activity. Vigorous, higher effort, you're more breathless. It's difficult to keep a conversation. Things like hiking, running, lap swimming, you know, cycling at a faster than 10 mile per hour, all those types of things certainly have health benefits. Yep.
0: And Mike Gleen, do you ever kind of use exercise as medicine too, when you're counseling your patients on healthy ways to lower triglycerides?
2: Almost certainly. And I also use that, try to get 150 minutes per week. I encourage patients to do some tracking of their intake. Lots of folks have Fitbits or iWatches or what have you to track (laughs) this. So having a mindfulness of how many steps per day. I like to recommend the goal of 10,000 steps per day. That scares a lot of folks off. So we encourage taking a baseline considering how many steps does my Fitbit say I'm getting per day and increase it by 2,000 steps per day to gradually build up to that 10,000 steps per day. The other piece that I recommend is increasing awareness of sedentary time at home. Our winters in Minnesota, I guess they last six months now. (laughs) So honestly, it can be a big stretch of time that people aren't able to get out. And even I had a woman yesterday say, "I, I haven't even been able to get out and pick up sticks in my yard. Usually by this time I pick up sticks in my yard, but just thinking about how can I get up and move more consistently and adding steps to their day, just in their everyday life. And even realizing something like putting music on and dancing in the kitchen to music. Those (laughs) things are helpful because a lot of people say, oh, I can't get to the gym. Or so since COVID, I quit my gym membership. I don't know how I'm (laughs) going to be active. Just moving Moving. in place and, and something that you can commit to is a big boost as well.
0: Abby, and if we try our best to lower triglycerides through diet and exercise, but darn it, they're still high, when should we turn to medications to help lower triglycerides?
1: When we look at medications targeting the triglycerides, I think mostly we're looking at the entire lipid panel. Statins, first line drug of choice, you see it on everybody's med list. And we can expect about a 10 to 30% reduction in triglycerides, depending on whatever statin the patient can best tolerate, and the dose that they can tolerate. Some of the old medications, phenofibrates like gemfibrozil, those are usually considered when triglycerides are elevated and we're trying to reduce the risk of pancreatitis, but those really aren't used if the ASCVD risk score is high. They're just not well-tolerated, lots of ill side effects, contraindicated in patients with renal or hepatic disease. One of the older medications too, niacin, a B vitamin, limited use there. Um, We don't see it around too much. That was typically used to increase the HDL, but again, kind of not well-tolerated and speaking of glycemic index, it kind of can increase that in diabetic patients. Two of the medicines that are new to the newer to the market that I've incorporated into my own practice are use of the marine derived omega-3 fatty acid preparations. So by marine, that means two of the three omega-3 fatty acids that come from fish or seafood, the brand names for those medications are Vasepa or Lavaza. These are very, very different from non-prescription fish oil products that are over the counter. You know, we know that over-the-counter fish oil has not been demonstrated to improve cardiac outcomes, and they're not recommended for ASCBD risk reduction, despite an estimated 19 million people taking them in the United States. But back to my soapbox about the marine-derived omega-3s, the first one, icosipine ethyl, vasipa is primarily made of just purely EPA. Lavaza has both EPA and DHA. Both of these medications, they work the same. They reduce hepatic, very low-density lipoprotein triglyceride synthesis, and they also enhance triglyceride clearance from the circulating, very low-density lipoprotein particles in the body. We can expect An additional 20 to 50% reduction in triglycerides after initiating these medications. Dosing, very easy, 2 grams twice daily with food. The REDUCE-IT trial proved that these medications are effective in reducing cardiovascular events, reducing the risk of MI, stroke, coronary revascularization, and unstable angina. We think that these unsaturated fatty acids stabilize plaque formation, but we just don't quite understand how it's done.
0: So Abby, when should statins be used or when should more specific triglyceride lowering medicines be used, such as these um, marine derived omega-3 fatty acids?
1: Yeah. So I think when a patient comes in and their lipid panel is elevated, we need to address all the modifiable causes. We've got to look at their risk factors and we really got to have that difficult conversation. We've got to maximize the non-pharmacologic measures first. We've got to get them eating right exercising, and pulling up the ASCVD risk score when the patient's in the office and showing them, hey, this is your risk, you know, for a major cardiovascular event. That sometimes brings more of an awareness, I think, to the patients. And then, you know, of course, if those things fail, maximizing max dose satin therapy, okay, to optimize the LDL, reevaluating the triglycerides, and adding omega-3s if the triglycerides are still elevated.
0: Well, Abby, thank you so much. It's been great hearing from you today and Michaeline, you as well. We've been talking about hypertriglyceridemia with Abigail Stockland, a nurse practitioner at Mayo Clinic, as well as with Michaeline Burroughs, a registered dietitian nutritionist at Mayo Clinic. Abby, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Oh, thanks. This has been really great.
0: Michaeline. thank you, too. It was really good to hear how you counsel with your patients and how we can be better primary care providers and um, counsel our patients on how to do better with their eating styles and exercise habits. So thank you so much for that info.
2: Oh, thanks. I love to support the care of the primary providers. I feel like we're a good team.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow us on your favorite podcasting app or visit us online at ce.mayo.edu. Until next time, this is Joshua Lucy for the Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, where we bring you the best clinical practice tips and trends from our exam room to yours. Have a great day, everybody.